Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rav Rachel Berkowitz on Sukkot. Did you know that Pardes from Jerusalem is now available on Spotify? Check it out and follow us there for your weekly Parsha episodes. Or you can visit elma.pardes.org for other great digital content. The holiday of Sukkot is just around the corner, and with it, the two central rituals of that experience. One, obviously, sitting in the sukkah, and two, taking the four species, the arbata minin, the lulav and etrog. And the lulav and etrog we shake each day with a blessing, and we also shake it during the recitation of the joyish hallel during the um, morning service. And although at least for me, I think of the Lula Venetrug as so central to the holiday. Um, the experience that we experience today as the Jewish people is actually based on a decree that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai made post-temple destruction. Because we're going to see in a second when we read the Mishnah, that originally the experience that most of the nation had on Sukkot was different than the experience we have today. And what we do today is solely based on what he decreed post-temple destruction. And it's really important, I think, if you don't know the character of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he's worth Googling, because he really, in my mind, is the father of rabbinic Judaism as we know it, um, as we know it today. Um, when the temple was standing, the main way that the Jewish people connected to the divine was going to the temple itself and experiencing the face of the divine at least three times a year on the pilgrimage festivals and maybe other times when you wanted to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving or atonement. But once the destruction happened, it was really a, a time of complete tragedy. How are we going to go forward? What was the future going to look like? Um, does, does the divine want to be in relationship with the Jewish people? How can we find ways of connecting without the temple? And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was in the Nasi at the time period, and he's known for moving the center of the Jewish um, Sanhedrin of the court of the academy from Jerusalem to Yavna, he decreed a total of nine different decrees that are relevant to us today. And one of these is this um, decree regarding when and how we take the lulav on Sukkot. Okay, so let's jump in here. The first text on your source sheet is a Mishnah from Masechet Sukkah. In the third chapter, Mishnah 12, the same exact Mishnah quoted verbatim also appears in the fourth chapter of Rosh Hashanah, Mishnah 3. So it's such a central Mishnah that it, it gets quoted verbatim twice within our canon. The Mishnah says, Originally, before the destruction, when the temple was still standing, the lulav was taken in the Mikdash for seven days, right, which in Israel is how long the holiday of Sukkot lasts. And in the Medina, outside the provinces of Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem, outside the temple, um, it was only taken for one day. And this is based on the way the rabbis understood the verses in the in the Torah itself about the lulav. If you look at source number two, the verses from Leviticus, um, Vayikra 23, it says, um, You should take for yourselves on the first day, and then it lists the four species, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. 
And the rabbis understood it. You're taking for yourself the whole nation, no matter where they're located, the four species only on the first day. But if you're Lifnei Hashem, if you're before the divine, if you're in the temple, then you're going to rejoice using these four species for all seven days of the holiday. So there was a difference of the joyous experience of the Lulav, whether you were located in the temple in Yerushalayim or whether you were at home or in your personal synagogue in whatever town you lived in. And there you only had the experience. It was, it was, it was a lesser experience of the experience of Lulav because there's something about celebrating it before the divine. And that can only happen in the temple. Then the text, and back to source number one, the Mishnah continues. But when the, from when the time when the temple was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai decreed that the lulav will be taken in the nation, right, everywhere, not, um, for all seven days. Um, so we would recreate that experience that we had in the Mikdash. And it says, Zecher Mikdash" in remembrance of the temple. And so when we take the lulav seven days now and shake it each day in Hallel, it's because that's what they did in the temple. And this phrase, Zecher Mikdash" in, in memory of the temple, is a phrase that in some ways many people think uh, encompasses all the actions that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did, all his decrees. Although interestingly, of all nine of them, this is the only place where he articulates it, where he verbally says, Zecher Mikdash." And I want to try to maybe come back to this in, a, in later on and see if we have a deeper understanding of this idea of why specifically here with love, he makes this statement. Now, the text of the Mishnah continues, and like tacked on on the end of the Mishnah seems to be kind of a throwaway line in some ways, another decree that he made that doesn't have to do with Sukkah, even though it's brought in this Mishnah in the tractate about Sukkah. And I think, although it seems strange and it's a little bit complicated, I think that this additional line is going to help us um, understand in a deeper way what was motivating Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai? How he understood the mitzvah of Sukkah, uh, sorry, the mitzvah of Lulav on Sukkot um, that enabled him to make this shocking decree. And although we're used to it, I want to point out it's really shocking what he did. It's really radical. It's very chutzpahdik, right? He took ritual that was done in the temple, that at the time when the temple was standing, we said, we can't do it anywhere else. This is unique for the temple. And then when the temple was destroyed, he said, we're going to do it everywhere. We're going to act as if exactly the way we had the temple. And that's that's pretty, pretty radical when you think about it. And I want to try to understand what motivated him. And I think this second line is going to help us a little. Um, the last line of the, of the Mishnah, so source number one again, it says, Ushie yom hanev kulo asur, and that the day of waving will be entirely forbidden. So I just have to give you a little background information so you can understand what's going on here. The day of waving refers to the second day of Passover, when the Omer, the first barley sheaves, were brought to the temple, and a and a sacrifice was given, and, and a ritual where the Kohen actually waved these first barley sheaves in some way, um, and this enables the Jewish people to eat from the new harvest. It's like sort of the 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 you know opening of the new the festive opening of the new harvest. And this is told to us in the Torah, um, source number three, in Leviticus, also in Leviticus twenty three, earlier in the chapter. And it says that, speak to Israel people and say to them, when you enter the land that I'm giving you, you shall reap the harvest. You shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for acceptance on your behalf. 
right? And the priest shall wave it on the day after the Shabbat, which the rabbis understand to be the day after Pe the first day of Pesach. And then it tells you what the sacrifice is. And then on the last verse, it says, and until that very day, until you've brought the offering of your God, you shall eat no bread or no parched grain or fresh ears. It is the law for all time throughout the ages in all your settlements. So until they do this wave offering with the Omer, um, you're not allowed to eat from the new produce. Now, uh-oh, and it says it should be forever. Now we don't have the temple. How, when can we eat from the new grain? Where, from when can we eat from the new harvest when there's no temple? And so the rabbis understand from this verse the fact that it says both ad etzim hayomazah, until this very day, and ad, until you bring the new korban, that there are two categories. If the temple is standing, I can I can eat from the time that the wave offering is done in the temple, which is sort of probably around midday, it would be safe to eat. And if there is no temple, at from from this very day, i.e. the morning, when the sun rises on the morning of the 16th, I should be able to eat. The takana that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did is he said, no, even though from the Torah law I should be able to eat all day on the 16th of Nisan, I'm going to tell you that whole day is going to be forbidden. And it's only going to be on the 17th that you're going to be able to eat. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah explains why. So he says, lest the temple be speedily rebuilt in our days and and people will be mistaken and they won't know that they have to wait for the Omer sacrifice and they'll end up eating and uh, because they said last year we ate for the morning and they don't know that they have to wait for the Omer. And that is his second decree, okay? And in some ways, these decrees are diametric opposites of each other. The, the, um, the lulav, I take what was in the temple and I do it outside when there is no temple. And the Yom Hanif, I could have done something in some ways in an easier way fashion without the temple. I could eat the new produce from the morning and not have to wait to the Korban Omris. But I sort of penalize myself and I say, wait one more day, says Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So um, I don't make a mistake, but I also think it makes me feel the loss of the temple. So I have diametric opposites. I'm feeling the loss of the temple by re-experiencing what the temple did for me. And I'm feeling the loss of the temple by refraining from doing something that I could have done in a different way if the temple was standing. So in some ways, these two cases seem opposite. But on the other hand, there's actually something similar about them. And this links to the waving, right? The text in the Torah explicitly referred to the, the barley sacrifice as a wave offering, that you wave, a ta you take something from the agricultural, from the plant world, and you wave it. The priest is the one who waves it. Now, the text about the lulav in the Torah just says that lakachtem, that we're going to take the lulav. It doesn't specifically say waving, but in the text in rabbinic literature, the lulav is clearly, clearly defined that the way that I perform this mitzvah, the way that I perform this ritual is through shaking, which to me seems very similar to waving. And the text of the Talmud is going to make this comparison, right? I, I, I wave the lulav, we call it shaking. And how do I see this? So if you look in the source sheets, in this, the third chapter of Masachet Sukkah deals with the mitzvah of lulav. The first two, uh, the first three chapters, sorry, the first two chapters dealt with the mitzvah of sukkah, and the third one talks about the four species. And the chapter opens with the first Mishnah of this third chapter talking about what is a, what are the characteristics of a kosher lulav? What do I need for a kosher lulav? And so the text says at the end of this first Mishnah, lulav sheishbo shoshat fachim bo kasher. A lulav that has within it three hand breasts, which is actually not that much. It's a pretty small lulav. Um, but what does three hand breasts enable me? It enables me to shake it. 
making the shaking hand movement with my hands enables me to shake it. That's a kosher lulav. That's a valid and eligible lulav. And that's what the chapter opens with. Then the chapter closes the last line of the last Mishnah, which is Mishnah number 15, source number five on your source sheet. It closes with Kantan A minor who knows how to shake the lulav is obligated in the commandment of lulav. And this is really interesting, right? Because normally we think you're obligated to mitzvot which, when you reach adulthood, when you have cognitive understanding of how to do the mitzvot. And here it says, no, there's something physical about lulav, that it's if you physically are physically capable of shaking, even if you're a minor, you're going to be obligated in the mitzvah. And so I open with talking about what makes an eligible eligible um, kosher lulav. And I end with talking about who's going to be obligated in this mitzvah. And both of them are linked to, can I shake? Does the lulav have enough to shake? And can the kids shake? And then smack in the middle of the chapter, um, which is in Mishnah 9, source number 6 on your source sheet, the text explains, where, where in the service? At what point? How do I do this ritual? When, when do I shake? And then the, mitzvah, uh, then the Mishnah describes what we normally do today, our practice today, is that we shake during halal at specific lines in the halal, right? When we say, right, at the beginning of that, and at the end, when we repeat those lines, we shake. And then, and have a but we hold like Beit Hillel, as did Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua, that on Ana Hashem, um, Hoshiana, we shake. So the, the the structure of the chapter, which defines the mitzvah of lulav, is very focused on the shaking. This is how you do the mitzvah of lulav: you shake, and um, and this shaking is compared in the Talmud to the waving, to the wave offering that I talked to you about, right? The Talmud. Um, makes a further connection between these two types of korbanot that, uh, that you wave. And it first starts to talk about the korban that is offered on Shavuot. Remember, the omer, the barley that we talked about, is the opening of the harvest. And then we use that timing of the omer to count seven weeks to get to the 50th day to do the mitzvah on Shavuot. And then on Shavuot, we take from the wheat harvest and we offer up shtei alechem, two loaves of bread, and also with it... Um, some animal sacrifices to lambs. And to explain the waving of the lulav, the, the Talmud in source number seven links it to a Mishnah that talks in, in Mesechet Minachot, that talks about this wave offering of the loaves and the lambs. And if you look in source eight, just on your own, you'll see the full quote of that Mishnah. That full Mishnah also mentions that the Minchat Omer, that the Omer sacrifice that we talked about, is also a wave offering. We knew it, but I just want you to know that it's in the text of the Mishnah itself. Both of these things are mentioned. The Talmud just quotes it from the um, earlier part of the Mishnah, and this is what the Talmud says. Look on source number seven. It describes how the priest does this wave offering on Shavuot, and the end line of the Gemara is going to say, I'm a Rava v'chein bululav. Rava explains that's that same motion that we're going to do on Shavuot with the wave offering and that we do with the barley offering, right, is the movement we're going to do with lulav. And so the text describes, it says, molich omevi male omorid, that, that you shake it, um, you do it forwards and backwards, right? Um, and you raise and lower it. You're doing it to and fro and, and up and down, right? You're sort of pointing in all the different directions. Um, and that's how you do the waving. And it quotes a pasuk to prove that waving also means lifting up, that you should also go up and down. 
And, um, and so we have a description of how the wave is done for the Shavuot offering, which is going to be the same as the Omer offering that I talked to you about, and which is how we're going to shape the Lulav. And then Rabbi Yochanan explains, why do we do this? Why do we do this waving, this shaking in these directions? I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. So I'm still in source seven in the middle where it's bolded. Molich umevi, lemisha arba ruchot shalo. Ma'ale umarid, lemisha hashemayim va'aretz shalo. Rabbi Yochanan says he moves it to and fro. Right to dedicate them to the one whom the four directions belong to them, right to the divine. All the directions, the four directions that we have, belong to the divine. He raises and lowers to the one whom the heavens and hers are theirs, right? To Shemayim and Arts belong to the divine. And um, and so we see this is a really fascinating idea here that um the mitzvah of waving and the mitzvah of the lulav shows that that really the divine is everywhere the divine is everywhere shamayim va'aretz all the different directions um i don't mean to say that i really understand either of these things but now it's more interesting to me that at the beginning of the harvest with the omer we take something agricultural and we wave it in all directions and then on sukkot which is the end of the harvest right the Chag Hasif, um, the celebration of the harvest, we do the same thing. And obviously the harvest is happening outside the temple. And the purpose is to realize that all this bounty that we've received really is from the domain of Hashem. The, the blessing is from the domain of Hashem. And so what's so fascinating about what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did is that even though the Miktash means that Hashem's presence is concentrated right there. The experience of the Lulav itself is come to prove to us that really Hashem is everywhere in all directions, in the Shemayim and the Maharats. It's not linked to one place. And so in essence, the Lulav is a faith statement that Hashem is everywhere. And so... When he says, Zecher Lamikdash, we take the Lulav, in remembrance of the Mikdash, we take the Lulav for seven days. He isn't saying like we remember what we did there. He's saying that according to the Pasuk, you celebrate before the divine Lifnei Hashem for seven days, that when there is no temple, when there is no concentrated experience of the divine, Lifnei Hashem before the divine is everywhere. And so the experience that we have when we shake the lulav on Sukkot is the same experience that we had in the temple. That's And that's how we remember the temple, not because we pine for what we had, because we're experiencing it right now in the exact same way. And this is why it's only with the mitzvah of lulav that it's Zecher Mikdash that I can really remember what the Mikdash was like. Because right now I can rejoice before the divine with my lulav, because the purpose of shaking the lulav in every direction is to say that I can experience the divine anywhere. And to me, this is an incredibly powerful message, especially in our time period with COVID, where I don't know where you're going to be celebrating the Sukkot and where you're going to be saying Hallel and rejoicing for the divine, before the divine. But if you remember when they lost the temple and you maybe are going to lose your, your synagogue experience or maybe your home by yourself, I don't know where you are at this moment. But just like Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai gave us a way to pivot after the destruction and to experience the joyous experience of the divine in any place, remember, if you're just standing in your living room by yourself, you are Lifnei Hashem, and you can shake that lulav in, in Hallel, and you can experience that experience of joy, of acknowledging the faith statement that all the all the directions, Shemayin on Ba'aret, is the domain of the divine. May it be a year of health and happiness and a Chag Sameach to you. 
thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to visit us on Spotify, where you can subscribe to any of our other podcast channels, or visit us at elmod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening.